Right next tonight, a new drama series featuring the life and times of George Bullman. detectives with a price to pay. That's the man, Bullman, Chief. You're contracted by one Joseph A. Ravel determining my existence. You should have stayed in China. Bullman, back on the case tonight at 9.30 on ITV. Hello. Hello. I'm Andrew. I'm Lisa. Welcome to episode 34. Thank you. I've read the archives. <laughs> Glad you know. <laughs> must must be April, mustn't it? It must be April, yes. Well, welcome everyone. Yes, um, hello. Any loose ends from last time? Uh, there was one, yes. Oh, it was the question posed uh, mm. in the Last of the Summer Wine articles. Yes. About the connection between Last of the Summer Wine and Pirates of the Caribbean. Which they never quite got round to answering. No, they got overexcited. And the answer is? It's uh, Jonathan Lindsay. That's right. Who plays Crusher. Yeah. And, and he's in the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, or a couple of them, anyway. Twice, yes, yes. indeed. Yes. Um, Shall we plug the videos and the blog yes, as usual? Yes, yes, we've done lots of videos. Yes. And a few blogs. Well, and... we've completed looking at the whole of season one of uh of blake seven, blake seven yes. recently so if you want to look at that channel um looking at it in a very different way oh, that's a moment you wouldn't expect in a blake seven video i even dressed up for one you of them did. didn't i yeah and i got me yeah. rocks out you got your rocks out yeah but enough of that yes uh we'll kick off with mm -hmm. martin holmes yes returning who's going to look at the worlds of george kitchener bullman well now on my tv bullman returns <laughs> Over the last couple of months, I've been re-examining the television career of one Detective Sergeant George Kitchener-Bullman. The television sleuth portrayed by the actor Don Henderson across several television series made by Granada Television in the latter half of the 1970s until fairly late in the 1980s. I should mention that any article that attempts to introduce you to three entire t television series is bound to give the listener less than comprehensive coverage of any of them. So I hold up my hands and admit that from the outset that this can only be seen as a general overview, which I hope will intrigue you enough to want to go and explore further. You might, of course, just think, well, my son, I'm not touching that with a proverbial. Although I hope not. In which case, at least I'm saving you some time. The character of George Bullman was first seen in the three-part miniseries The XYY Man in 1976. 
and continued throughout the subsequent ten-part series the following year, before reappearing alongside his sidekick Willis in the TV cop show Strangers, for five years nestled snugly around the start of the 1980s. Finally, in 1985, a third series, simply entitled Bullman, reacquainted us with the old curmudgeon as he moved into retirement and considered the apparently far safer world of clock repair, until he was persuaded to become a private investigator by Lucy McGinty, the daughter of an ex-colleague, for a 13-part run, followed by a return for a second, shorter and absolutely final series, a couple of years later. Because I remembered hugely enjoying the show at the time of first broadcast, I'd been considering picking up the DVD box set of Strangers, the middle of these three series, for several years now. But something else more attractive always seemed to come along and draw my cash off in another direction, and so I never seemed to get around to it. Then, as luck would have it, I found out that both it and the XYY Man were now available in far cheaper slimline packaging, and with the complete series of Bullman on the brink of release, it seemed like the right time to gather them all up and have a complete run-through of his many adventures. Well, about 65 of them anyway. Actually, it's a couple fewer than that, because of the peculiar anthology format the first couple of years of Strangers used to mix and match its lead characters in separate stories. This basically means that, despite being the breakout character, old George misses out on being in a couple of them. Anyway, because I have the tendency to be a completist, all three were picked up, and because I prefer to do things that way, I started at the beginning and put disc one of the XYY man into the machine, and absolutely, utterly loathed it. It was one of those shows that just seemed full of unpleasant people doing unpleasant things, often to each other. And whilst its premise is based upon a now defunct theory about criminal behaviour, also incidentally touched upon by the Pricking of My Thumbs episode of Doomwatch about half a decade earlier, perhaps I ought not to have been surprised by this, given that the central character of Spider Scott, played by Stephen Yardley, just a small career step beyond his turn in Genesis of the Daleks, is supposed to be an unreformed criminal just out of prison. To be honest, it was the apartheid South African trappings of the tale, and some of the language being used that made me feel most uncomfortable. But so such things should, because that kind of society and the attitudes displayed ought to feel damn peculiar to our hopefully more enlightened modern way of thinking. So... I staggered through the original three-part miniseries, The Proposition, The Execution, and The Resolution, in which Spider Scott, having been released from prison and being determined not to get sent back, is persuaded by British intelligence to do a little bit of thieving for them, in a tale of double-dealing, double agents, and with detectives Bullman and Willis always on his heels determined to lock him up again, and kind of left it at that. Anyway, after dallying with several other series over the summer, I decided it was about time that I tried Strangers instead, and so, for the moment, I skipped the follow-up series of The XYY Man, despite my mother having had a close encounter with the show when it was being made, and describing that Stephen Yardley as a lovely man. They used the offices she worked in for some of the location work for the third adaptation, consisting of the three episodes When We Were Very Greedy, Now We Are Dead, and Whisper Who Dares, which involves a rooftop break-in, and which are placed most illogically on the DVD releases in a 3-3 four episode distribution when the stories are in four then three then three parts again it's as if the company doing the releases knew nothing about the series and its linked episodes because with a little bit of a shift all four discs could have contained a complete story on each instead of three of them featuring incomplete stories ah well luckily you've got people like us to keep you wise to such anomalies dear listener anyway all of this i found out later because before i went back to the xyy man i did a run through of the entire five-year run of strangers a show created by one of the writers from the xyy man murray smith and built around the characters of detectives bullman and willis working as police strangers hence the title who are brought in because they are unknown to the local criminal fraternity and are therefore more able to go undercover to freely infiltrate themselves into their villainous schemes and bring them to justice at least i think that's the basic idea behind the series although it sometimes feels like a fairly vague hook upon which to hang the show it's an oddly inconsistent series with the styles titles and music in a constant state of flux as is the cast 
The location filming, coupled with studio videotape technique, so familiar in television drama of those times and also used in the XYY Man earlier, vanishes after the short second run, and the programme moves totally onto film from series three onwards. As I mentioned earlier, it starts off as a kind of anthology of police stories featuring various individuals, but not necessarily all of the main four cast members with, alongside Don Henderson, Dennis Blanche as the ever-faithful Detective Constable Derek Willis, Francis Tomalty as Detective Constable Linda Doran, and a rather criminally underused John Renane as Detective Sergeant David Singer, who is nominally Bullman's equal, in rank anyway. The opening episode, The Paradise Set, serves as a foretaste of Don Henderson's later series, The Paradise Club, and finds Bullman and Willis relocated to Manchester, not that they'd ever been anywhere else, this being a Granada series in which Manchester used to pretend to be London all of the time, and trying to fit, a, fit in around northern coppers who resented their presence, and the bizarre drinking clubs owned by peculiar northern comedians giving a very eccentric feel to the series from right from the off. They've been seconded to a new kind of squad, later to be referred to as the Intercity Squad, and by the end of this episode, largely set inside a paradise club, Bullman seems content to leave a cat burglar he spots going about his unlawful trade be, after spending his previous two television series appearances trying to catch Spider Scott at it. So maybe he's mellowing, even though he hilariously misses the great big crane being stolen from right under his nose, something which even gets a mention the following week, which is almost unheard of. The rest of the first series calms down a little after that, with tales of undercover operations and the running storylines involving Bullman's lack of promotion and his ever-present attempts at getting an education via the Open University. These telling character traits, alongside the ever-present woolen gloves he often wears, his willpower Shakespeare t-shirt, his literary quotations, the nasal inhaler he frequently brandishes, and the use of a carrier bag as a briefcase, as well as the fact that his knee twitches whenever it senses arch-villainy is afoot, are the quirky little touches that help transform George Bullman from being yet another run-of-the-mill ten-a-penny television copper into a genuine TV character. Well, those and the nature of the cases under investigation, and the fact that Don Henderson seems to be a pretty fearless actor when it comes to blending in with the seamier and seedier aspects of life beyond the edge. Bullman's shabby demeanour seems very comfortable down amongst the dregs of society, and in one memorable episode he does find himself living amongst the homeless around the Docklands for a time, and ironically he does seem very at home there. Don Henderson and the writers seem to have enjoyed that aspect of him too, as they returned him to the very same situation in a sequel episode during the run of the later Bullman series. As far as I'm aware, however, these quirks were never quite enough to lift him to Columbo levels of public recognition, so he never got Yarwooded or Davrode. Episode 4 of that first run, one entitled In Accidental Death, features, by the way, the former Ian Chesterton himself, William Russell, portraying a rather dodgy businessman and the series as a whole does attract a rather surprising number of familiar and high-profile guest stars across its five-year run, as well as giving trial runs for the various styles of TV cop shows, a few of which, like Between the Lines and Juliet Bravo, appeared on our screens in very similar form several years later, which at least proves some writers were watching closely and mining the series for ideas. For example, the episode entitled The Tender Trap in Series 5 could almost be an episode of Juliet Bravo, with its no-nonsense female officer running a rural northern police outpost and episode 5 of the first series, entitled Briscoe, finds Bullman going all out to bring down a corrupt police officer played by Michael Byrne in a kind of prototype for Between the Lines a decade or so later, a series you'll remember which fe featured Siobhan Red Redmond, who we will be coming back to later on. Strangely, however, a couple of episodes later on in that first run, Bullman then very briefly recruits the very same dodgy copper to assist him when he is trying, not very successfully, to protect a family in peril from some extremely nasty villains who want 
want their money really badly in the final episode of that series. For a while, it looks as if this particular bad apple will be joining the team, but in fact he's never heard from or referred to ever again, a fate which also befalls both Francis Tomalty, a former Mrs Sting apparently, when she transfers out early on in Series 2 and John Renane after the end of Series 4. Series 2 opens with a strong story set in the now lost world of the Northern Docks, Liverpool I think, due to that reference to DS Singer driving 30 odd miles up the motorway, but being Granada it might have been shot in Trafford Park. Anyway, like much of Strangers and the XYY man before it, it gives many views of a Manchester resembling the one I grew up in, and much of which is now lost forever, so the rush of nostalgia I get from this show, or from just seeing one of those orange GM buses like the ones I went to school on, is worth the price of admission on its own. We are also given views of both Piccadilly Station and Manchester Airport during the run, both of which are seen before they were turned into the shopping malls they have since become. Early on in Series 2, after the team seem to have bonded nicely during the Wheeler Dealers, there's only one more episode before Frances Tomalty does her vanishing act, and her abrasive and fiery Irish copper is quietly replaced by Fiona Mollison as Detective Constable Vanessa Bennett, who is an altogether more glamorous and posh girl copper, with a tendency to cram herself into the very tightest of denim jeans, and she remains in place for the rest of the show's run. I don't really know why that casting change occurred, but perhaps those TV times were just not ready for the kind of real-world police officer Francis Tomalty seemed to be trying to present, and the powers that be may have wanted someone more easy on the eye televisually. Different times, but not so very different. Or maybe she just wanted to leave and Fiona Mollison knocked the audition out of the park. Who knows? Meanwhile, perhaps one small factor is the fact that Derek Willis does have a habit of waving pornographic magazines at the character in a way that actually leaves little to the imagination, perhaps simply offering a touch of unwanted realism from those times that seems rather surprising to modernise, or maybe the production team were just trying to see what they could get away with. After the rather brutal end to Series 2, in which George is held hostage after an incident at an occasionally snowy Greek-ish wedding, and Bill Tarmy makes one of his several appearances as an extra on both sides of the law in Strangers before he moved to Coronation, Street, Series 3 brings Mark McManus to the team as the new boss of the squad, Hangman Jack Lammy, a kind of prototype for his far more famous term as the Zbanamaga Taggart a few years later, and who is, at least at first, also not averse to waving magazines featuring full frontal nudity right at the camera and holding them there as plain as day. Something for the camera boys? Honestly, fellas, it's really not necessary. As I mentioned before, Series 3 onwards is all shot on film and does actually benefit from it. I suppose that there was now a gap in the market from the demise of the Sweeney that Granada were hoping to fill, and at least for a time, Strangers looked as if it might fit right in there. Certainly the filming does give the whole show a grittier feel and helps with the editing, but it also seems to lose something with it too, as if those little character interactions that you get when there's a room full of actors all giving it their all are lost, when just one of them is the focus of the camera's attentions and the rest are otherwise engaged. A pair of episodes are set in Scarborough, which shows up well on film, although it's probably best not to get too attached to one bright new member of the squad introduced around this time, who features in this particular story arc. There's also that very good one featuring Bullman going undercover amongst the homeless community, a setup, as I mentioned, that seems to have appealed so much that it actually gets a proper full-on sequel. By the end of the third series, Bullman himself does finally get his promotion to Detective Chief Inspector, and thereafter the squad is pretty much his to awkwardly manage as best he can. The opening of Series 4, the Moscow Subway Murders, is however the quirky and eccentric version of Strangers that I remembered it always being like, which only goes to show something or other, I suppose, and features George Pravda as Pushkin, a similarly driven and eccentric Russian policeman out to discover the truth behind a series of murders at whatever cost. Naturally, Bullman and Pushkin get on like a house on fire. Because I remembered really liking Strangers when it was first on TV, but the series I remembered was always like that episode, which, watching it all over again, and in order, did rather disprove. 
improve. However, with the occasional interference of Thorley Walters playing the shady spymaster Bill or Clarence Dugdale, things were never likely to be quite as they might at first appear in the shady world of strangers. That said, the very last episode, with these gloves you can pass through mirrors from 1982, goes into whole new areas of quirkiness as Bullman and his Russian ex-policeman pal Pushkin head to the rescue during a standoff involving Suzanne Danielle and a very Irish Patrick Mower riding along in a motorbike and sidecar with George decked out in a First World War flying helmet for comic effect, and this is very much a sign of things to come. Having finished watching Strangers and seeing George quit the force for reasons of personal conflict of interests, I went back and filled the XYY man gap before moving on to the third show featuring the character, the eponymously titled Bullman. The XYY man was still difficult to like, really, possibly because any examples of quirky eccentricity are quite toned down, naturally so, as it isn't really Bullman's show back then, although he does have his moments. Well, I suppose he must have for the bosses at Granada to consider making that spin-off. The XYY man, however, is generally just a rather nasty and brutal show about nasty and brutal people, and it's rarely tempered by even a smidgen of self-deprecation. Mind you, the series is based upon several of Kenneth Royce's original books, so maybe that's a tad unfair of me because it might be very respectful of its source material, and it does have its moments, and several of the usual suspects to look out for playing unusual roles. After working my way through this series, and its interesting if not very likeable tales of double-dealing do-badders, I moved quite naturally onto Bullman, a series that only lasted 20 episodes across two seasons, the first 13 of which were in series one. Having it return for a mere seven more episodes almost makes it seem as if they didn't really know what to do with the show and it really feels as if they simply recommissioned the second run to finish it off. Which is a shame really because of the three series I think that it's Bullman that, on reflection, is consistently my favourite. For a start, you've got Siobhan Redmond playing Tom McGinty's daughter Lucy McGinty in one of her earliest TV roles, teaming up with Bullman to start STG Investigations, which runs in parallel to his ambitions to retire and set up a clock hospital, and she is, quite frankly, an utter joy to behold, and plays off the quirkier aspects of George's character quite delightfully. Siobhan has form, you know, in cop shows turning into something else involving PIs. Her later appearances in the series Between the Lines would also involve her partners leaving the force and setting up as independent inquiry agents, although this would all lead up to a far more devastating finale for that show. Other regulars and semi-regulars from the Stranger series do turn up from time to time, and it does take a few episodes before the series shakes off those shackles of its past and begins to soar. Funnily enough, George Bullman playing a seedy private eye does seem like a perfect fit, even though it does remind me, from time to time, of that other down-at-heel inquiry agent, one Frank Marker from Public Eye, a series which I may be returning to look at at another time. Much like Frank did nearly two decades earlier, George even does a stretch inside for a time, but the two series and the reasons behind their respective incarcerations really could not be more different. George's betrayal of his fellow inmates leads to a death threat that has him skipping the country with Lucy and heading off to China at the conclusion of the first series, and it is quite possible that this is where we might have left the career of George Bullman, but it was not to be as the series did return for that second, final and shorter run two years later. The problem, however, with finishing the first series on such a devastating cliffhanger is that, if you're not going to simply leave it in the lurch like that, it takes an entire episode of Don Henderson sporting a Chinese-style beard and ponytail and a lot of convoluted plotting to reboot the series back to where it was. And then, when you've only got six more to play with before saying goodbye forever to the show, it perhaps hardly seems worth it. That said, however, those last six stories really are some of the very best episodes that this series produced. It loses all pretensions of being a normal detective series and goes off at least in part to a 
whole new level of quirkiness, which includes the episode The Chicken of the Baskervilles, which is, quite frankly, worth seeking out all on its own. By this time, of course, because the series has lost those pretensions to be a serious drama and has moved into the far more interesting bat-droppings crazy phase, the storytelling can become quite frankly bizarre. Although the scene that Don Henderson plays fully naked in a bathhouse at a certain age, remember me mentioning earlier that he was an oh-so-fearless actor, is something that my memory is struggling to forget. Something else we ought not forget, however, is that Murray Smith was an exceptional writer too. There was something about the way that he could make you know all you need to know about a character and perhaps utterly dislike them with just one line of dialogue that smacked truly of genuine genius. There's a scene set in a country house in the first series where some posh boys are bothering swans by a lake and you learn all you need to know about just how unpleasant one of them is from his one remark at the lakeside. And I was reminded of this because I'd forgotten the remark itself but remembered how it made me dislike the character when Lucy meets up with an old flame in the second series and when she is introduced to a friend of his who replies with is this the Lucy you write poems to but never post isn't that truly wonderful it's an astonishing devastating almost poetical single line of dialogue which tells you everything you need to ever know about this lad and his hopes and his dreams and his yearnings and his failures which any aspiring tv writer ought to pin above their computer to look at and weep over whenever they are thigh deep in scenes crammed full of tedious exposition Sadly, this sometimes quirky, sometimes rather savage and brutal set of programmes came to a rather abrupt end with George rather mournfully tootling on a saxophone and Lucy heading off to Manchester and new opportunities after they've been forced to fake their deaths after more devious machinations involving Bill Dugdale. That melancholy saxophone solo drifting across the tense atmosphere that has developed between our two heroes over their recent dice with death immediately chimes with the memory of lonesome old Frank Marker and is the last we would see or hear of former Detective Chief Inspector George Kitchener-Bullman, formerly of Scotland Yard and the best clock fixer in London Chesterford. All three series are good, but all of them are inconsistent too, if you know what I mean. That's why I wrote this as a general overview of all three shows, rather than my usual focus on one particular episode. However, if you'd like a few pointers at some of the very best episodes the shows have to offer to a new viewer, I'll recap a little. For a Juliet Bravo style fix, I'd recommend Strangers Series 5 The Tender Trap, and Series 4's The Moscow Subway Murders shows the series at its quirky best. The XYY Man is hard to like, and the episodes are linked into three or four part stories, so that can be a bit of a commitment, but they are all watchable with the caveat of being of their time, of course. And Bullman is pretty much all good stuff, although even it can get a little brutal from time to time. But the chicken of the Baskervilles is a standout for me, although Series 1's One of Our Pigeons is Missing is an interesting sequel to Tom Thumb and other stories from Series 3 of Strangers if you want to see George in full-on down-and-out mode. There's a lot to be said for the era when TV drama as entertainment didn't have to always involve ordinary people being miserable, but it could be more escapist. Life's miserable enough without watching more of it when you're at home. And Bullman, in all his incarnations, with one foot in the real world, but another foot firmly planted way beyond the outskirts of ordinary everyday normality, was an astonishing television character, and one well worth getting to know. I hope you enjoyed the journey. Just don't forget to keep a pair of gloves handy. Thank you very much to Martin. Yes, thank you, Martin. 
we've got all of the, the available Bullman material. I, I think, think so, we? yes. Yeah. We haven't really watched any of it, but we've got it. It is there. It's there to be ploughed through at some point. Oh, good. Yeah. Right, next up, um, mm. Andy Priestner lifts a finger and an article is there. Yes, as, as he, he visits us for the first time. Yes, mm. he, he will be back later. Yes. To look at? Finger bobs. Yuffie lifts a finger And a mouse is there Puts his hands together And a seagull takes the air Yuffie lifts a finger And a scampy darts about Yuffie bends another And a tortoise head peeps out These hands were made for making and making they must do. Finger Bobs was created by Joanne and Michael Cole, who were also responsible for the wonderfully weird bod, for which the writers drew on their Taoist beliefs, and the lesser-remembered ragtime with Fred Harris. Fingerbobs first aired in February 1972, just a few weeks before I was born. Thirteen episodes were made in total and repeated throughout the remainder of the 70s. As you probably remember, the programme largely centred around the character of Fingermouse. Other recurring characters were Flash the Tortoise, Gulliver the Seagull and Scampy uh, the Scampy. More on Scampy later. Each character had their own song and the one you'll remember is for Fingermouse. Fingermouse Mouse. They never stop to think a mouse. Be always on the brink a mouse. Think a mouse. That's me. I am the mouse called Finger Mouse. The mouse with guts and verve. I get past cats so easily with my famous body swerve. Finger Mouse. Finger mouse. I'm a sort of wonder mouse. A hit, a miss, a blunder mouse. Finger mouse. That's me. Personally, I never drew a distinction between finger bobs and finger mouse, thinking them both a name for the mouse character. Perhaps because he was in every episode and it just felt like his show, when in fact, of course, finger bobs is actually the umbrella name for all the characters in the programme. But then, if he was Finger Mouse, why weren't the others called Finger Seagull, Finger Tortoise and Finger Scampy? Watching it again, I was a little confused by how different it felt until I realised that it was the fact that it was, a, it was in colour that felt strange. I'd only ever seen it in black and white, you see, as a child on a bulky big brown TV. And the biggest surprise of all was Scampy. He was bright pink, like, like a Scampy. <laughs> little me thought he was simply Finger Mouse's weird little cousin rather than a sea-based creature. I didn't know what a scampy was, so presumed it was just a name like Flash. I liked Flash back then, but watching it today, I was largely irritated by how slowly he talked and moved. Do you mind, says Flash, round things. Yes, you know, round things. Slowly, steadily, I move at my own pace. They call me Flash. Though I won't dash 
who wants to run a race as long as I get there why worry what's the hurry <sighs> we need to talk about Yoffi a weirdly named archetypally 70s joy of sex type guy with a multitude of jumpers and hip cravats I always thought Yoffi had a slightly odd voice. Turns out that was just his Canadian accent. And he wasn't really called Yoffi either. He was in fact Rick Jones. Rick is still with us and cropped up in the papers around the time that the BBC decided to get rid of TV Centre. Um, telling us about regularly taking marijuana while working as a presenter on Play School. That stuff always makes good copy, doesn't it? Later in his career, he fronted a country rock band called Meal Ticket. And he now lives with his wife, Valerie, in San Francisco. I'm kind of surprised he lasted as long as he has, to be honest. Anyway, Yoffi is central to Fingerbobs. He gives life to all the programme's characters with his hands forming different parts of the creature's bodies. His finger mouse is, of course, a cone with ears affixed to a grey glove, which he moves with a spider-like roving hand, while Gulliver is both his hands in white gloves coming together with a ping-pong ball for a head to make a simple but effective seagull. What I always found strange about Yoffi was how, for the opening and closing scenes, they didn't even try to disguise his connection to his paper-based puppets. Although for the middle parts of the episode, his creations get to roam free, separately to Yoffi. I didn't question it too much at the time, but I remember it distracting me a little. But then the whole programme was pretty strange when you think about it. But like all that weird 70s kids TV, you just accepted it and kind of let it wash all over you. There was once a country where everything was made of things that were round. There wasn't a straight thing there. The cars had round wheels, but the roads were very bumpy. They couldn't be straight, because in this country, there were no straight lines. The country was ruled by a round king and a round queen. They had a daughter, the Princess Rotunda. I watched three episodes in total today, entitled String, Sounds and Bumpy. Titles which, by the way, were not ever given on screen. The DVD menu and the information about the episodes of Fingerbobs all over the web are entirely wrong, by the way, about which episodes feature which characters. So I spent an awful long time trying to find a scampy episode. Eventually, the episode Bumpy turned out to feature him. Even Fingerbobs isn't free of 70s sexism. His scampy girlfriends, yes, all five were his girlfriends apparently, his little harem, are useless and giggle all the time because they are merely girl scampy. Rude. I flick up my tail and swim in the sea With haddock and place and dabs I wriggle on rocks with my little legs Past lobsters and limpets and crabs My name is Scampy, Scampy that's me I live on a hand in the sand by the sea. Pointed shells. What could be bumpier to walk on? I'll get my girls to help. Cooey! Cooey! There are lots of empty limpet shells lying about on the beach. Collect as many as you can. Off you go, girls, and no hanging about giggling. Off you go. No hanging around, I said. 
I was quite surprised at how much theft took place in the episode's string. Fingermouse steals a football, while Gulliver half-inches a suspiciously Russian-looking red flag, presumably to match Yoffie's undoubted political outlook, a kite string, and some doll's clothes from a doll's clothes line. Some of the items are later returned, including the doll's clothes, but he puts them back on the washing line in the wrong order. And as one of the items is a pair of dolly knickers, I'm slightly worried about the the doll thinking that there's some sort of pervert hanging around their washing line. Um, the kite string doesn't get returned, though, because Finger Mouse appears to persuade Yoffi at the end of the episode that he can keep it. Yoffi announces that he will return the kite string later, but not very convincingly. I guess the thefts relate to Yoffi needing to tell a story towards the end of each programme, for which he requires the things that all the characters uh, find. So it's a kind of reverse bagpuss, I guess. In the episode Sounds, there is thankfully much less theft, as Finger Mouse and Flash record sounds in a music shop for use in the story, on what was probably the smallest reel-to-reel tape recorder I've ever seen. The story that Yoffi tells at the end of this episode features the tale of Kenneth the Pony. Yes, Kenneth the Pony. Elsewhere in the series, we meet Finger Mouse's girlfriend, Gloria, Enoch the Woodpecker, and Louise the Squirrel. Yep, Louise the Squirrel. It's like calling a cat Julie. (laughs) There's only one more soft thing I need, and I've sent Gulliver to fetch it. I like to rise and spread my wings White upon the breeze I like to soar and spread my wings Above the roofs and trees And then to swoop down, down into the town Fold my wings behind my back And see what's going on Finger Bobs was apparently phenomenally cheap to make And it shows but I think they can be excused because the show's central conceit was that children should be able to make the characters and the settings themselves out of handicrafts. The sort of things that were everywhere back then. Paper, um, wood, buttons, string. And sometimes simple is all you need. I recall, though, that I never tried to make Finger Mouse or any of the characters myself. I was more than happy with my red dog, named Red Dog, a big yellow teddy bear called Yellow Donta. No, I've no idea what the Donta bit meant and my huge Orinoco Womble, which I'm clutching in many faded 70s snaps. So what do I make of Finger Bobs in 2019? Well, it's definitely a nostalgia fest that takes me back to that front room in Ashington, a town north of Newcastle where I spent some of my childhood, and cultivated a Georgiish accent, now long gone. Why, man, of course I had an accent. Other than Finger Mouse himself, I think it's the raffia-backed titles that feel the most resonant. We forget how much raffia there was about in the 70s. We certainly had raffia table mats and coasters all over the house. And of course those ubiquitous macrame plant pot holders. And in this way, finger bobs just merged with my everyday existence. Finger bobs was weird, but it was also kind of normal. And when Yoffi lifted a finger, I was very happy to sit transfixed and watch whatever happened next. Louise the squirrel, though? Really?
What's that? Looks like a moving bush with ears. Oh, it's gone. Oh, it's come back. What is it? Oh, yes. It's Louise, the squirrel. Thank you to Andy for another lovely article. And Andy will be returning later on in this episode for more chat. And now, uh, Paul and Nick return. Mm -hmm. And they're going to look at a comedy series known as Queenie's Castle. Lisa, it's me, Paul the Shy Yeti, and it's Nick the. What, what, uh, the, the slightly, right. <laughs> <laughs> slightly sleepy uh, late afternoon, Nick. Um, this time we're going to review two episodes of a series from the very early 70s called Queenie's Castle. It's a sitcom, it's got Dinah Dawes. I'm particularly a fan of 70s and 80s Dinah Dawes, and um, yeah. We're going to probably do the first episode from 1970 and maybe the first episode of the third season. There's three seasons. And um, I've, I've only seen um, some of the first episode. I've had this set a while. But have you any knowledge of this? Did you know anything no, about I'm it? No, I, I mean, it sounds very familiar, but I've never seen an episode. No. And, um, well, I'm, I, I, like, like you, I'm, I'm quite keen on Dan Dawes, so... Mm. Well, you you were being very young, and I wasn't even born when it when it finished. So, yeah. um, cause it finished in seventy two, and I wasn't born till seventy three. So. Yeah. Well, um, let's see what we think of uh, at least the first. We might stop halfway through. We'll see see whether it's got natural ad breaks. And, and now is a brand new series, Queenie's Castle, starring <laughs> Diana Dawes. My goodness, it's like it's in the room. <laughs> Um, so we watched the first segment of the first episode of Queenie's Castle, mm-hmm. and um, well, Dinah Dawes is playing Queenie, the the head of the family. Uh, <laughs> Dinah Dawes is playing Dinah Dawes. <laughs> yeah. She's she's quite. Uh, do we think it's set in Manchester or somewhere like that? It's certainly yeah. It's 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 up north and it's grim, shall we say? Yes. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's interesting because um, it. I find it more interesting than funny, to be honest. It's it's yeah. got, it's yeah. pulls no punches in being a very deprived de- depraved de- um, deprived area and very mega working class. 
which is very much coming out of the kitschy sync dramas of the 60s. Mm. Um, so it's it's very interesting. All Every other woman is wearing a quasi um, Mary Whitehouse specs. Yeah. Um, yeah, Diana she... I mean, yeah, you wouldn't mess with her, would you? Because she's... Uh, she, she's got three sons who live at home, and they're all scallywags, yeah. and, and her f- brother-in-law, or is it yeah. not her, but is it... Her brother or her brother-in-law? Yeah. I think uh, it's her brother-in-law because brother, uh, the, the husband is away. That's right, yeah. Husband's away on the, working on the motorways, but that's true, I don't Tony, know. Played by Tony Calder, who, who yeah. uh, turned up in EastEnders as one of Pat's hub- hubbies and yeah. also was in um, Three Doctor Who's. Yeah. Uh, we're just about doing Colony in Space when he did this. So it's a, it's more of a slobby part for him than, uh, than I've ever seen him in. Mm. Um, um, no. Because they they realise after a bit of conversation that it's Queenie's birthday and nobody, of course, has bought a present. So whilst the others are distracting them, possibly it looks like the youngest son heads off down the estate to find out what he can nick to bring back. Yeah. Uh, and that mostly involves um, nicking some flowers yeah. from somebody's window box yeah. and presenting it. And the person he nicks the flowers from is played by. Lynn Perry, who is better known from 80s episodes of... Of Corrie. Or 90s yeah. episodes of Corrie, yeah. Um, and... Uh, um, yeah, there's this one bit just before the ad break where, um, having come to complain about somebody stealing her flowers, Queenie threatens, decides that maybe she needs a parting gift, threatens to throw some... Um, a loaf of bread out the window but it appears to bounce uh, or maybe that's just what I thought it, 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 it narrowly misses her anyway but I thought it also bounced at one point <laughs> back I, up again a bit. to be honest I mean um, it, it's it, it, as I say as a social snapshot it's very interesting yeah. uh, as a comedy it's Not a so bit much. like a bit like um, Wurzel Gummidge you, you end oh, yeah, up kind of admiring the writing more than actually laughing at it I don't know you know I, I presume we were supposed to laugh at words of garbage but um, but well, you, uh, we haven't told them the, that it's um, oh sorry yeah it's, it's really it, it's written by Willis Hall and uh, Keith Waterhouse who, mm. who did the uh, very famous duo of writers but um, I mean the, the forgotten birthday is about the oldest sitcom yeah. trick in the book more, <coughs> I mean I know what you mean about I mean words of garbage is a funny one that's is that drama is that comedy yeah I mean when I watched it more re- more recently uh, it almost made me cry in yeah, the way that it, it's Wurzel incredibly was. dark and tragic mm. and uh, Pertree is giving it 120% as, as Wurzel but with this um, there's the, a bunch of hateful it, it's hard to it's hard to <laughs> it's, I mean even Diane Dawes' character seems uh, unlikable, you know. I mean, sometimes in this sorts of series, is you get used to catchphrases, yeah. or so it's hard to know if yeah. there are any catchphrases or if the um, it. it uh... Barry uh, also because uh, there's a character played by Barry Rutter who's sort of um, slobbing on the telly watching TV, and every time uh, Diane Dawes goes past, he sort of raises his legs in a sort of pseudo-sexual way I'd go to it sort of oh please don't do that no, that's you're supposed to be your mother <laughs> um, 
But no, it's it's very interesting. But um, uh, yeah, I mean, it's there's it, elements of um, of only fools in there. When the certainly in the the flat um, and the sort of ducking yeah. and diving and the, I think I prefer uh, in a way when it comes to that sort of thing. I well, when it's comedy that's mixing around in drama, I prefer something like Minder, which is a, a drama, yeah. which is funny or has yeah. funny circumstances. Mind, it's not mind trying to be a mind, sitcom. Minder's a nice combo. It's it, it really it's genuinely funny and um, uh, it, but it is supposed to you know it's a, it's a drama. It's, it sets itself up as a drama. Whereas I th- I'm not I'm not grouping this with with um, Live Boat. Live all the Carla Lane ones for me were they were they they're under the title of comedy, but they 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 so want to be dramas, you know, and tragedies. You know, mm-hmm. I, I I find it I find them very uneasy to watch. This, this isn't quite like that, is it? Oh no, but, no, um, it's it's very much a bulk standard um, uh, sitcom, ITV sitcom. But mm-hmm. uh, but no, the, the pathos of um, Carl Lane's stuff was it was always horribly misplaced. I think. But well, let's see what we think. Yeah. Moving on to the last, the second half of this episode. Yeah. Well, we've watched the first episode, and um, um, Queenie continued to have a, a sort of birthday party, although the pub was suspiciously empty. Mainly seemed to have a family in it, and um, Brian Mosley as. Uh, Otherwise known as Alf Roberts from Coronation Street as the barman, and who who was the uh, who who did you spot? Who, what who did I spot in, in, in the, the shop? Cast? In the yes, in the, in the shop. shop yeah, uh, uh, was Kathy Staff of um, Nora Batty fame. Yeah, um, yeah, that was the main one. That was her, her and and, uh, and Alf Roberts. <laughs> yes, um, uh, and yes, uh, I think. It'd be interesting to, to know if, um, prior to this, I, I'm, I know they've been going for quite some time, the uh, Hall and Waterhouse, because um, uh, they did Long the Short the Tour, which was like about 10, 11 years before. Uh, I wonder if they've ever fallen foul of Mary Whitehouse. Because <laughs> yeah. Lynn Perry's character, who is just like Mary Whitehouse, and has got a petition and, and is trying to get them out, um, gets a hell of a raw deal um, yeah because she, she wants just five more names yeah. on her um, on her um, <laughs> petition to get rid of them and yeah. then they end up signing it or yeah or, or do they, they but they on that. I it's one of those things where you your your sympathy lies with the person that's being shafted <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know you can see why she's got 400 petitions it's, they are a complete bunch of hateful assholes I don't know I, I think I, I, I think I go. I think we're supposed to like them, but well, I go as far as to say I don't really like anybody. I don't like her character because she is that horrible meanie. She, I mean, she, she, Um, she don't like her any more than I like them. Yeah, I mean, she Um, is, she is a bit um, pompous, but uh, you can, you can, you know, she's, she's got. Well, also, four hundred people have won them out, and uh, also particularly as there's that scene where they're kind of. Men- menacing her about yeah. the estate that was actually rather uneasy to watch you know in a comedy in a sitcom I know you've got a defenceless woman with these three brutes of a men sort of looking menacingly out it doesn't exactly endear you to the leading characters I've said it before and I'll say it again I always hate it when villains 
um, don't act like they you know when something goes wrong or someone's yeah they they just get more cross. It's like you know come on you're you're treating people really horribly and badly and now somebody's turned on you. Well, you kind of deserve it and mm. you just put your hands up and go all right fair enough you know <laughs> but baddies rarely do that but then there would be no story if they which, did which one are you talking about i'm talking about all well all of all of the all of the, the queenie's family yes. are a bunch of villains yeah and you know it annoys me when people are yeah. being bullies and yet they yeah. act like indignant when yes yeah, exactly. when, when somebody uh yeah, um, they, they sort of calls them out on it. I mean, you know, she, they 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 nick at um, Lynn Perry's flowers, um, and that was very nice. Uh, um, maybe it's maybe I just like my the TV heroes to have a bit of gallantry, but I mean, obviously, we you know the the the, the base the basis of it is like they are cro- Paddy Crooks, uh, but Queenie uh, at the end of the episode, she's just in the pub, being quite loutish, and yeah, uh, in a way, I think it would work better if she was as nice as nice and everyone around her was or you know almost yeah. to the point where they kind of, people were beginning to doubt that they'd seen yeah. bad happening because because Queenie had, yeah, had I, sort of tricked them out of uh, with with by being such a charming person but yeah she, I, I think you've, you've actually got it there I mean I, I think it would be would have the whole thing would work much better if Queenie was the moral compass that reels them in and, and keeps instead of which she sort of she only seems to sort of whack them if if they they or disrespect even, her you know even if she's the gem in the center and she's the mastermind uh-huh. but if she was acting if she was acting really sort of um innocent but mm. but still being the puppet master or mistress um yeah well if we watch an episode well, from i i'm just saying when that policeman walked in <laughs> please arrest them sodding <laughs> lot of them you know we'll give We'll give an episode from a later season ago and see whether... I mean, they improve. They probably would have, you know, sort of joined a monastery by then. They can't get, yeah, they can't get much worse. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but, yeah, it's... it's I, I imagine... It, there are, don't get me wrong, there's there's some super people in it. I mean, Dora Dawes is legendary. Um, Barry Russell is a very good actor. And so is Tony Corbett. So you've got, you've, got, you've got people like Brian Mosley. So it's it's good stuff, um, but it's struggling to find it's, a character you like because I don't like bu- yeah, they're, they're, bu- they're bullies. All thoroughly it's... unlikable, and and you you kind of it's just painful to watch because the the, um, the outcome is always you know if it's if it's going to switch. To, it's a bit like on the buses. I used to. Mm. I, I I I hate that because. I feel so sorry for for Blakey, and um, the whole thing is always loaded against him, mm. and um, so, without we, much shade. We're going to try and watch like the first episode of season three. Is that right? Is that what you? I presume it? so. I just put yeah. the last disc in. Yeah, that's yeah, right. We can yep. we can um, we'll see. We'll we'll go for the start of the season. You hope yeah. that the first episode of the season is going to be a good one. So. Yeah. Okay, okay. Let's see. Let's see if you can impress us, Queenie. <laughs> so we did, as we said, and uh, we're watching episode one of season three mm-hmm. of Queenie's Castle. Now, um, on first first uh, looks, 
Nothing much has changed in. No, uh, Tony Calder's got a different shirt, <laughs> and, and, and um, he's, he's saved up during the season for a different shirt. And the younger son's hair is slightly longer. Now, were you saying the last season was seventy-two? Yes. Yeah, it's interesting because it's obviously set three years earlier than it is. Because uh, oh, they're going about they the, moon the moon, maybe they were which was sixty-nine. Unless the, because the humour is so sort of. <laughs> whatever they could just have been being sarcastic but it's not played in such a way that it's just a bit confusing as to it is yeah. Yeah, but then a lot of a lot of Hall and, and but then that, that one wasn't I noticed that this uh, it, oh, I was looking at Wikipedia and although it says they wrote the they wrote, they definitely wrote that first episode but, yeah, it, but it, they didn't write this one so oh. and then it came up with a different no, name Stuart something Stuart something yeah, yeah. Um, but, um, we've also discovered that it's set in Leeds, not Manchester. Which but I, I, I've been to Leeds. Um, uh, me I too. went to the yeah. City Varieties Hall to watch Panto, and I think it's because they kept lens in Leeds. I think it's because they kept calling uh, each other. Uh, well, Queenie kept calling the kids our kid and stuff, and I yeah. thought that was just a Manchester thing. But well, maybe it's, Ali and I've been not. to Yorkshire Television in Leeds, um, mm. the studios where we saw Emmerdale set and mm. the set of Emmerdale. Now, the, the plot of this one is that I, I've lost exactly why, because, I mean, I don't think they've done anything any worse than they usually have. Um, they're just usually awful. But anyway, this time, this episode, she's um, she's thrown them out, and mm. they they thought she was kidding, but she called a taxi, and they were, they were pretty much escorted out of the building. Um, and then, soon afterwards, um, well, well, there was, there was a... <laughs> When I say a funny scene, funny for this program, there was a, a scene where the, where they get out of the taxi, and one of the kids. But again, it's hard to know whether he's he's such an idiot that you don't know whether he he's just being silly or whether he believes it. But they're in like an industrial estate, mm. and, and he says, "This must be what the country look, looks like." And and um, I mean, Tony Calder just shakes his head, yeah. but but. I don't know quite what, where, whether he really believes that or whether that's yeah. just them being sarcastic or silly. But anyway, um, Lynn Perry turns up back at the ranch and, um, and informs um, uh, Queenie that there's a prowler on the loose yeah. and Queenie hasn't got much time for this theory because, of course, she's got four strong blokes living in the house, yeah. except that she hasn't because she's just shut them out, which is where we... we uh, the episode sort of stopped for the advert break. So, um, well, uh, let- I, 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 you, you got the feeling that um, you know, are you going to joke them out? Oh, it's a plot device. You know that they'll be back. It's almost yeah. a shame that they are because the place looks so much better without them. <laughs> um, you know, it's actually quite civilized. But um, yeah, again, Queen is still a very unsympathetic character. She's probably the least sympathetic. Diane Dawes, or least likable Diane Dawes character I've, I've, I've probably seen. You know. Outside of horror uh, films. Out, well, outside <laughs> of horror films, yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I but, um, yeah I, it's. She's not, she's not Adamant's prince, um, fairy godmother, is she? No, no, no. It, it's. <coughs> it's a shame, it, it's, it's full of talented people, but the, the plots are very cliched, and, and, and the, the characters. You don't give a tuppence for. I mean, it's hard to know. <laughs> it's hard to know whether they were as cliched then, um, uh, to a certain extent. But whether or not, but 
I think I know, maybe they weren't so cliched then, but it, but the characters are definitely unlike, pretty unlikable. Uh, yeah, I mean, can't dispute that. That much. sort of plot line was cropping up in the Likely Lads and yeah. long before this. Yeah. Um, so I mean, you're, I'm, I wouldn't mind betting there's there's an episode somewhere in the season where somebody a, a pe- appears to inherit a fortune and everyone's nice to them and it all falls through at the end. That, that that's another one that keeps going over and over and over again. Oh, um, um, I'm, just, I'm I'm just snobby about comedy. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, luckily, we don't have to watch all the episodes to find out if you're right. But, <laughs> but um, <laughs> there is one one observation though. With, with the um, the advert break um, picture, it's done in like the estate's done in a kind of fisheye lens, uh, and uh, it looks makes it look like the Royal Albert Hall. Apparently, um, the actual estate. I was reading on Wikipedia. The actual estate was an Art Deco. That's art, that's an Art, art Deco. A 1930s uh, style, um, which has since, since been demolished. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I think it's considered. Art Deco's nice. It's, uh, it's sort of poncy and. Well, you know, uh, maybe it fits the series. <laughs> I was hoping for Dana Dawes being a strong, a strong female character, and she it is. But it, she's a she strong is. bitch. She is a she is a strong character, but she's totally unlikable. So it's not quite fulfilled my dreams. Fulfilled <laughs> your dream? I, don't well, know. I didn't know you had dreams about. I have Dana dreams Dawes. about Dana Dawes. Not those sort of dreams. But I have, I have dreams of you know, her being feisty, but feisty in a fun way. Which isn't what has been happening in that much at the moment, but yeah. let's watch the last bit and see if in part two she can raise a bit. And I, I hope it's going to flip on its back and say, "No, I'll beat up the proud of myself and leave them all out." out there. Well, the proud. I think that's too much. Too much. So we finished our second episode, and um, well, it mainly seemed to involve um, the. I think the, the best bit of it was the start of. Second half, where um, um, Lynn Perry's character came back um, and they ended up having to share a bed because they were both scared that the uh, prowler was going to come round. And then, pretty much the rest of the episode was just one after another of the the sons and Tony Coulter's character sort of scaring her as they returned to the fold. Um, and then, then the, the, the quarter of an hour was up and it was time for the end of the episode there <laughs> wasn't much more to it am I, am I being unfair um, <laughs> I, I have to say j- jokingly I, I kind of said that, you know I, I, I might have actually said it when you were recording but uh, you know it would be nice if, if it flipped out because the predictable thing would be back in the bosom of their family mm. um, which you, you think is going to happen and then she actually does push them out she does show them out again um, for a second time yeah, yeah which, is, which is quite nice and it's just, yeah, although Lynn Perry is revealed as the, as the prowler it's nice that the, you know they don't sort of dump her in a bath of baked beans yeah, or, you know, or, or sort of do something nasty to her. she's sleepwalking isn't yeah. She? yeah you almost get every time she's around those Characters, you almost kind of afraid for her because so kind of abominably dysfunctional. But no, again, again, um, talented cast. But I can I can see why it's fallen through the floorboards of um, the TV history. Really, I think at a at a push, they were slightly and only by a very slight degree more likable in the second. 
they were yeah, more, so slightly I mean, more likable in the second episode. Yeah. They're more settled, actually. I mean, Tony Calder's eulogising about the the achievements of man when they're they're doing the moon land, mm. you know, which. Uh, he, all he was interested in is catching the football and and, and so on and so on. But uh, and one of the sons has a Dougal T-shirt, which is one of the highlights of the episode. <laughs> yes, <laughs> <laughs> if not the highlight of the yeah. episode. Um, Barry, Barry Russ is a very they're, they're all very good actors. It's uh, um, and I, I guess ITV paid a bit more as well because of it's a, being a commercial channel. It, it was uh, it was a little bit more. Dosh and uh, I see. Yeah, they all picked. Yeah, we mentioned Leeds last time, didn't we? Mm, yeah. yeah. So, uh, but yeah. yeah, they did. They did go on location though. When when, when they, they did, did that scene where they were, they thought they were in the countryside. They they didn't take them to a very nice part of <laughs> of Leeds, but they they did go outside of the set. But mm. uh, <laughs> um, I also said to you, not only does the set of the flat remind me of Only Fools and Horses, it also reminds me a bit of the flat you often see. Eric and Ernie in in sixties oh, um, yes. or seventies, uh, um, Morecambe and Wise episodes. Yeah. Probably just the the logistics of setting up the. Uh, it, uh, it just looks like a shabbier with with some horrible turrets outside the <laughs> the window. Otherwise, you expect one of them to say to hear, you hear to expect one of them to hear a siren and say oh. you won't sell any ice creams going that speed. Yes. Or, if they or, did, or, that would be the funniest joke of the whole episode. Or, or, yeah, <laughs> or uh, the three wheeler turning up. You know. Yeah. <laughs> But, well, um, I'm sorry. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad we've sampled it. Yeah, I'm sorry that our, our opinions weren't largely that positive, but um, well, can't always be good, and um, still, there are certainly things. I've got the box set, so I may watch some more. Maybe just one or two here or there. But you did before we go. You did. You did remember yes, one episode where Donna Jaws plays what, a character even worse than this. One of the first joint ones of these review ad hoc reviews we've done for. RTA was, um, or is it? It is for RTA, isn't it? Yes. Than, yeah. Um, it was Thriller, mm. and um, and uh, one of the episodes of Thriller, uh, quite probably the mo- one of the most famous ones, is when Diane Dawes was playing the devil. Mm. So um, apologies to Queenie, she isn't the most unlikable character that, uh, and I think she was pretty. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I think she. Was You're being pretty, unkind to the devil now. I, I, I think she was pretty nasty in um, Mr. Blund- the Amazing Mr. Blunden. Yeah, and uh, and I've seen her in horror films where she's not particularly likable, but uh, anyway. But Diana Dawes class act though. I mean, yeah. she she's reminded me a little bit of um, a, a British Shirley Winters, mm. uh, Shirley Winters, and mm. uh, sort of lots big wig. Lots, lots of glamour and um, everyone's mum basically that was Queenie's Castle thank you um, thank you Toby and Lisa for letting us talk about it we didn't, you didn't really have much choice <laughs> <laughs> they, can not, they can not put it on the show if they really hate it <laughs> Touches down on the moon early on Wednesday morning.
BBC One will have continuous colour coverage of man's second moon landing. The first signals from Apollo 12 as the lunar module is on its descent orbit will start at three minutes past seven when the command module emerges from the rear side of the moon. In the BBC Space Studio, Cliff Mitchellmore, James Burke and Patrick Moore will be joined by astronaut scientist Curtis Michael. Men on the Moon starts at seven o'clock on Wednesday morning on BBC One in colour. Thank you very much to Nick and Paul. Yes, thank you, boys. It's interesting to do something that I, th- I think none of us are particularly keen on. Yes. But I, 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 I like their sort of um, honesty in, the, yes. in that. Yes. Um, and we've just watched um, the Prowler episode. We have, yes. And, uh, mm. yeah, the, the moon landing scene is quite interesting, it a- is. actually. Yeah, they can't seem to make their mind up what they're talking about. It's quite, left quite open-ended. Yeah, because uh, although Apollo 11 and 12 are 19... 19- 69 mm-hmm. this episode was actually shown august 72 mm. and apollo 16 is april 72 yeah. and 17 is december 72 okay uh, but i guess it's the thing that although even by apollo 16 it's become a familiar mm. thing on television yes uh, you know it's still it's still an amazing achievement isn't yeah. it um, well, yeah it is it's, it's an amazing achievement now nobody's been on the moon for yeah. 40 odd years have yeah. they but also um you had a, a dougal t-shirt like that i didn't did you? Well, well, dark dark blue background dark blue, yeah it was black yeah your, your said woof on it, it didn't did. it yeah. yes yes oh i don't think did dougal ever say woof not really no, no. well, well not not on eric thompson's version anyway no so. but anyway uh mm-hmm. now we're delighted to have an interview with andy priest now. yes yes we who, were, who found himself in the Bournemouth yes, area. and we were lucky enough to meet him. And sent me a message saying, yes. can I come round? Yes, can I come and see the sofa? <laughs> so, luckily, we were able to sort of jiggle our schedule a we bit. We were, yes. Um, and here we are. Mm-hmm. Some fun with Andy. Yes. We're here on the sofa... With Andy Priestner, no less, who's wandered in. <laughs> Off the streets. <laughs> Off the streets. He finds himself in the area and has come to say hello. Hello, Andy Priestner. Hello, Troby and Lisa. I am, I can't tell you how happy I am to be sat on this sofa. He's been on the wine already. Isn't I he? have. So maybe the happiness is slightly increased by the wine. But no, it's fantastic to be here. Um, having listened to this podcast for what feels like a very long time, and oh, we... it is a long time. <laughs> it feels like it. <laughs> and enjoying absolutely everything about it. And yeah, this sofa. I've thought about this sofa a lot. Probably a little too much. Um, the last time I thought about it in detail was I was in Brisbane, in Australia, other side of the world, and I was like, I just want to be home. I just want to be sat on a sofa talking about old TV. Um, so when I had the chance of coming to Bournemouth, I was like, yes, I must invite myself. Rudely, and, <laughs> <laughs> and see if I can well, say hello. Very glad to have you. How did you come across us then? How did you just? How did you discover around the archives? I think it was I'm just... fascinated now. <laughs> I think it was just about a point where I was like, "Oh, I'm doing a lot of travelling. I need to occupy myself so I don't get bored." So I started with the Richard Herring Hollister Per podcast. And then I thought, there must be other things about TV that I could be interested in. And honestly, yours was one of the first ones I just found by just searching for TV podcasts. And I was like, this is cosy and yet informative. And it's my humour 
So that was wow. What that's why. Oh, thank hey? you. Yeah. Right. Well, a few probing questions. We're Gosh. going to probe you now. <laughs> Will this hurt? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> earliest memories of television. What do you remember as a kid? Okay. So it'll be all that seventies weirdness, like wonderful weirdness, like finger bobs. Yeah. Yoffy lifts a finger, and a mouse is there. Uh, <laughs> God, it's like he's in the room. <laughs> um, Bagpuss clangers. Yeah. Clangers was amazing. It is just clangers, not the clangers. It is clangers, yes, yeah. Thank you. For, I knew you'd know. Yeah. Um, I get cross when people get it wrong, <laughs> so I'm glad you got it right. <laughs> and, of course, um, the wonderful um, Cambric Green and Trumpton and all of that stuff. Yeah. yeah, all of that was very important to me and formative. What didn't you like as a kid, though? Is there stuff of kids' TV that you switched off? Uh, or were you, or did you just take it as it came? I think because it was early to mid seventies that it was pretty much all all British stuff that mm. was good. I've always been a bit sneery about American TV, and okay. the more American TV came in in the eighties, Scooby Doo or cartoons. Oh, Scooby Doo, I loved. I often in the seventies was forced to do things for a year that I didn't want to do. I did Cubs for a year, yeah. and famously, I did piano for a year. <laughs> And because I had to do piano for a year on Thursday Thursdays after school, I missed Scooby-Doo, Where Are You? And that was painful. Oh, dear. And as I was plonking the keys very badly, I was thinking, I could be seeing what's going on now in Scooby-Doo. <laughs> I'm annoyed. And as soon as the year was up, I stopped. So, uh, BBC <laughs> or ITV, though? That's the, oh, that's the question. Very much a BBC family. So it was kind of like, if you ever were on ITV, it was kind of you had a look. <laughs> a look from my father. My mother was much more relaxed about it. My father was very much like, why would you put ITV on? It's wrong. So t- tis was no, no swap shop, yes? Oh, absolutely. Total swap shop, yes. And Blue Peter over Magpie. Yeah, I, I don't think I ever ever saw Magpie because okay. it just wasn't permitted. <laughs> <laughs> or it wasn't even that we were told. It was more like we just knew that you didn't change channel. Right. It was like, this is it's not done. <laughs> <laughs> not right. Which sounds terribly weird. I think it was partly my influence of my grandma as well, who mm. was very BBC. I think we're possibly the last surviving people <laughs> to whom that... That was... makes us sound terribly yeah. odd. I know, but... <laughs> I know what you mean, and okay. I've, other people have said yeah. you were you were one or the other. So I have huge yeah. gaps of knowledge. Yeah. So there's loads of ITV series that I've only discovered in the last ten years, and I'm mm. like, wow, that's good. Well, there's know. a lot of weird ITV kids serials yeah. to, to look at. So yeah. yeah. I, for instance, I never saw the Tomorrow People when I was growing up. Good lord. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And you'd think, or or Into the Labyrinth. Yeah. All that stuff. All right. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Doctor Who then, inevitably, early, inevitably, early earliest Doctor Who memory, um, Pyramids of Mars repeat, which I believe was seventy six. I, I might I need, be I need wrong. to check. that. Yes. I'll, I'll drop it in if it's if, if yeah. we're wrong. I'll look it up later. Um, it was it was the mummies crunching through the woods and Sarah hiding and thinking, this is freaking scary stuff, <laughs> um, but it's amazing, and. But regularly watching Doctor Who, I think I remember pretty much everything from Hand of Fear onwards. Mm. And just being very scared about Sarah having the hand in the plastic box in the Tupperware. (laughs) And Leela's introduction and being really excited and surprised by the fact that she was going with the Doctor at the end. And thinking, wow, 
that's actually she's the new companion actually I remember being so astonished about that so I was only five but I was obviously truly engaging with that okay. yeah but um weird gaps thereafter like um underworld I didn't know what that was <laughs> Until quite quite a few, it just didn't process at all. Okay, yeah. Weird. Actually, maybe that's the only gap though. And what about the books? Were you reading the Target books? Yeah, I was told. I was told. Um, well, no, I wasn't told. It was funny. I found a pamphlet <laughs> in my father's father study, and the pamphlet was—it's famous in our family—was called "Spot the Gifted Child," <laughs> and my parents had sent off for this booklet. <laughs> It was something to do with having gifted children. I don't think I was particularly gifted. But where to get them from? <laughs> I don't know. But this is a famous book in our house, and everyone always talks about Spot the Gifted Child when I'm around at Christmas and stuff. Because there was this pink book, and it was basically about how gifted children can be different and can be girls and can be boys and they can like different things. And it was because I had such a passion for writing in English mm. that they were a bit worried about it because I'd squirrel myself away and write very bad Doctor Who stories or whatever it was I was yeah. writing about and I used to be very alone as a child and very insular and I think they were genuinely worried so they got this material about gifted children <laughs> anyway um, one of their worries was that I spent all my time yeah, all my time reading Target Doctor Who books like endlessly endlessly every one probably about ten times I think my copy of Planet of the Daleks almost fell apart. Okay, so it wasn't Planet of the Daleks so much for me. Yeah. We've read that about four times, which is a low a low yeah. read threshold for me. <laughs> <laughs> Something like Planet of the Spiders, say. Yeah. That was probably about 15 times, or Pyramids of Mars, or Towns of Wang Chang. Just endlessly went back to them and just got so much joy out of them. I felt I was in them. And... The young me also didn't pay any attention to whether it was a Terence Dix or a someone mm. else. I just enjoyed most of them. A few I struggled with. I never got through Mask of Mandragora. I don't know why. It's Philip Hinchcliffe, isn't it? Yeah. Never read that one. Okay. A few others which I was like, no, this isn't working for me. But I don't know why. Anyway. But through this, I presume this is how you got to learn about Doctor Who pre-Tom Baker. Yes. So, and that, I think it was the Five Faces of Doctor Who. Yeah. In so, would, would have that have been your first sight of yeah. other Doctors? And just being astonished, and also slightly angry with my parents for not telling me. <laughs> but there were previous Doctors. You you know how obsessed I am with the show. You haven't even told me anything about it. And my mum was like, "Oh yeah, I remember when Susan left?" And I'm like, "What? <laughs> Why are you not telling me this before?" So. Had you seen like clips on Blue Peter or or anything not like that? that I really or nationwide? Not that no, I really remember. No. no. Did, I mean, did you have any books like the Monster Book or? I had the second Doctor Who Monster Book, which yeah. is very much Tom that was Baker. Tom Baker. Yeah, yeah. yeah the so first I didn't have one. the earlier stuff, so no. I didn't know. All right. So there was a big void, and then Five Faces of Doctor Who was like a spiritual experience. <laughs> Even the Crotons. <laughs> <laughs> but Doctor Who monthly, weekly. <laughs> Talk to you monthly from issue with Peter Davison and the Concord on it. 78 ish. Don't ask me about numbers, but I know, <laughs> I know the cover. Yeah. 
No, I think 68. It was 68 because 69 is the Black Orchid cover. All so right. 68 was Ooh, my first one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's sad, isn't it? And discovering that there was a season survey and the results of the season yeah. survey and the Doctor Who fans actually wrote in to say which were their favourites, I thought that was all deeply fascinating. So did you know any other fans at this point? No one. No one. It was just, just me. Just you. You were the Doctor <laughs> Who fandom. Yes, in Northumberland, in Newcastle and then Northumberland. So no, I didn't know anyone. And I remember the first time it came up at school was when Adric died. And I was like, oh, there's other people who watch this. Wow. And they thought it was cool as well. But it never really developed into anything more. Um, there was a friend, my friend Paul Brown, who I must mention, who's now sadly sadly died of a brain tumour, which was very sad. I only discovered this recently. But he was the person who showed me there was Doctor Who Weekly. Mm. And I used to go to his house just to read back issues of Doctor Who Weekly even though I was meant to be there to spend time with him. Yeah. And I used to just sit with those magazines and ignore him. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you told me earlier that you did get involved with a group in Exeter yes. at, at some point. So that was a it, bit later, I guess. Yeah, that was in the early 90s. That was probably my very first sort of connection with fandom. It was a group called the Devon Seaside Devils. And it came out of the Exospace Convention. I went to that. Did you? Yeah, well, I was there both as well. Of them. I did Exospace too. Exospace 1 and 2. Yeah, yes. I was there as well. Yeah. How funny. Because there was Lala Ward was at the first one. Yes. And Debbie Watling at the second. Yeah. And Ian Stewart Black was there. Yes. Yeah. Peter Miles. Prentice Hancock. Yeah. Yeah. I got a headache on day two, but never mind. <laughs> <laughs> it was obviously so exciting. Oh, yes, <laughs> I had to retire to, to, to I, bed. I was yeah. just telling you my convention story. I got there. I, I didn't know anything about conventions or about the availability of videos with Doctor Who on it. And I remember telling people in the queue, I've seen in the programme that there's a video room. There's a video room. They're showing Doctor Who now. And I ran to go watch the demons. And I'm like, why are they not going to the room? We're all <laughs> they're showing the demons. I've read the book 20 times. Why is no one ever running after me to come to the video room? And it just was so amazing for me so mm. the first exospace you wouldn't have seen me because well, i was sat in the, in the video room. room watching videos yeah. for two days <laughs> because i couldn't believe they were you accessible. paid your money that's what you'd come for yeah. yeah well i didn't i didn't realize it was possible this was a new joy anyway <laughs> the devon seaside devils which was a bit weird because i was at the university and most of the people weren't and it was kind of like oh he's from the university and i'm like yeah but i'm normal well, normal for a doctor who fan and there was a fandom, a fanzine, sorry, yeah. a fanzine, the Russell Boer show. Yes. yes. And Russell Boer... I've got at least one copy of okay. that in the cupboard somewhere. So I've got all of them somewhere. But the Russell, Russell Boer was a kind of a legendary character even before I met him. Um, slightly odd guy. <laughs> Obsessed with Katie Manning yeah. and the John Pertwee era. And, yeah, they named the fanzine after him. For, and I, I gradually got to understand why. But um, I used to write a a little section in that called Cliffhanger Corner, yeah. and where I used to write about naff cliffhangers in Doctor Who and call them naff hangers, which doesn't make any sense. And I'm now looking back thinking they were probably awful what I wrote, but I did. So, yes, dig out your old copies of the Russell Boer show. Wow. <laughs> I'm in there. <laughs> it's a very small world, this fandom stuff sometimes, because I, I genuinely didn't know till today that you were going to say this. Yeah. So. Yeah, that, that, that's that's really re quite weird from my point of view as well. So it's Miles Northcott. Who that's is, right. Yes, yeah, yeah. who who's yeah. a who's a Facebook friend now. 
Yeah. Yeah. But over time, yeah. um, you've sort of branched out into loving an awful lot of other things. So is Doctor Who your sort of, was it your springboard into other shows, do you think? Yeah, or? and I remember the, the times I've interviewed actors and I've lied and said I don't know anything about Doctor Who in order to get kudos off actors mm. and for them to open about these other series. So the first time I interviewed Louise Jameson in a, in a hotel um, in London, I, was, I thought, I'm not going to tell her because I know she'll respect me more if I pretend I'm not a Doctor Who fan. And it worked. <laughs> she knows now. The cat's yeah. out of the bag. But um, the first time I met Pennant Roberts was to talk to him about um, what, Survivors. Yeah. And I never, ever asked him about his Doctor Who's because I was there to do a Survivors job and I was professional about it. Mm. And he loved the fact that I didn't ask him one question about Doctor Who, I'm sure. You know, he just loved it. That it was, this is different. Yeah. But now, I regret that I didn't talk to him about... Well, pe- people you know? People are starting to say now, why not interview Terence Dix about the classic serials, for God's sake? Yeah. Because be no- nobody ever does. Yeah. And this is one of the reasons, I think, why when we were planning around the archives... Mm. We held off a long time before we did anything Doctor Who. I felt that Doctor Who's been done to death in sort yeah. of research terms, but there's so many other shows mm. that nobody ever talks about. So, well, this was the same my same um, reasons why in 2003, when I started the Survivors website, which you can still get to, it's not all there anymore. I still keep renewing the website <laughs> subscription, um, the domain. Um, SurvivorsTVSeries.com, which I put together, and literally within a few months of putting that together, I got a phone call from, no, an email from a DVD company in London, DD Video, now defunct, saying, um, would you be interested in producing the DVD release of Survivors? Um, yeah, yeah, a little bit. <laughs> Something to do, isn't it? <laughs> and I deliberately had done a Survivors website because there was no Survivors stuff out there. Yeah. I could have done a Doctor Who website, but everyone was doing that. And this led to doing DVD releases for loads of different series and meeting loads of different people. That was amazing. I mean, it's, it's interesting because you've seen our huge piles of DVDs. I'm looking at, them, looking now, at them now, en- enviously. And uh, every now and then <laughs> you sort of go, oh, I wrote a book for that. <laughs> and I, I don't know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, I mean, Secret Army and Tenko were big passions. Mm. And to finally... And Survivors... And because I've written big books about all of them, I'm kind of done on the writing almost because yeah. they were my three big series other than Doctor Who. And I've kind of written what I think are good books about them. And now I've not got the same sort of like, I must provide to the world these books because, yeah, I've done those biggies and I talk to all the people who matter to me. But over there is Kessler, for example. And yeah. You did, you did that and I didn't know you'd done that. Yes. Yeah, that and was fun. Or Gas and Gators as well, apparently. Yeah, without meeting any of the cast. <laughs> but I did meet the writers, Edwin Apps and Pauline Devaney. Well, mm. I met them. I talked to them. I phoned them. Because we've got their script book for, right. for the, the first. Because they've done okay. one one book of missing scripts. They were going to do more, but yeah. nothing seems to have happened yet. So. so they were really interesting. They were divorced. And I think the most important thing for them during the process was that I didn't refer to their divorce. <laughs> Just kept checking back with me. You're not talking about the divorce, are you? <laughs> and also there was this tension because Edwin Apps is a proper painter yeah. 
And his impression was that Pauline Devaney's just a, a, an amateur painter. A dabbler. Uh, yes. <laughs> and there was this tension as well. But um, the joke is, the funny thing is, that I've got a piece by Pauline Devaney on my wall, but I haven't got a piece <laughs> by Edwin Apps. Maybe that's because art, I don't know, I, I go for more accessible stuff. <laughs> but um, are you still discovering series to, to fall in love with? Yeah, it's your yeah. bloody fault. Is it my fault? <laughs> Yours and Lisa's fault. I mean, I was just saying, I bought, and I'm happy to admit it, the complete Terry and June because of you two. Yay. I bought Sergeant Cork. I bought the Hinge and Bracket sets. Mm. Loads of different things because of you spouting on and getting encouraging me to watch but old is, stuff. But is this through no me- through no memory of this stuff? Or oh, I, I own everyone had to watch Terry and June, didn't yeah, they? I mean, yeah. it was just on. But um, as I said, the ITV Sergeant, stuff. Big Sergeant gets. Cork was completely new to us, and we oh, just it? we just took a punt on it. Why did we even buy Sergeant Cork, um, Lisa? Because we saw a clip on it was around the seventies of Peter Salis as a Chinese character yes. which was not not why you were meant to you were meant to go oh my god that's awful but I went oh that looks interesting yeah. and it was quite cheap so I just bought the whole thing yeah. mm. the whole series um, it's amazing it. don't you think the price of box sets when it's the whole series is amazing mm. I just yeah. like I can't resist it Adam oh wow okay I bought Adam Adamant because of you alright okay so there's some dreadful episodes but I there's know, also but some, <laughs> there's some <laughs> But yeah, why don't we get commissioned for this? Because uh-huh. people keep saying, yeah, you know, network, we, if you're listening, yeah, we we keep se- we keep selling your videos for you. Come on, you do, you do. That's weird, but yeah. But yeah, so you've you've got a lot of to watch, I guess. Yeah, yeah, so. and it's it's having the time, and I don't. It's mm. sitting down and saying, "Look, let's put something on," because you end up watching stuff. We're going through Line of Duty at the moment, which feels betra- a betrayal to all the old TV, if I'm honest. But we did sit down and we watched a very good episode of Rockless Babies last week with the with the gorgeous Susanna Schelling in it. Um, so when we do make an effort to sit down and watch stuff, we always enjoy it. Mm. And and we're, we're going through Secret Army as well with my son at the moment. We're halfway right. through series two. He's ten, and it's. The finer details are a bit lost on him as to what's going on, but generally he's he's enjoying it, mm. and that's wonderful. Passing it on, yes, <laughs> yeah. Does it feel like that, that people should know about this stuff? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And something about the way TV was made and the care and the the character development is what I'm passionate about. And that was always in Doctor Who. What it was, it was about the characters, and the same in. Tenko and Secret Army and Survivors it was just, it's about character it's not about spending huge amounts of money mm. it's about caring about about, do you believe in this character, is it honest, is it true and do the actors commit, and I think in all those series, they largely do yeah. not all the time <laughs> in, yeah. say, Survivors <laughs> I would say there's issues, Survivors has issues um, particularly in its third series <laughs> but um, yeah there's so much to enjoy isn't there but you're doing a podcast of your own now so d- let's just yeah. brief- briefly give that a plug yes world enough and time my sister and I um, always watched Doctor Who growing up in the um, in the late 80s when my parents divorced my sister and I became kind of best pals, confidants, supporters of each other. My sister's six years younger than me. Alex. Hello, Alex. Hello. <laughs> Hi. Waving. 
And she lives in New Zealand now, so the, this kind of connection is, was slightly lost, I guess. But back in the late 80s, early 90s, when all the videos were coming out, I'd bring back these videos of Doctor Who, and it, it, we just devoured them endlessly. And we had Doctor Who-a-thons through the night. We wouldn't go to bed, and we just watched stuff, have a kettle by the sofa, and just... I was in sixth form. She was, I don't know, I guess about to start high school. I don't know. Um, and we we devoured who then those that shelf of videos was so important to us at a time when let's be honest we wanted to escape from the reality of our existence in a tiny council house where we didn't have enough money to really eat because my dad had left and it was it was difficult times and doctor who was kind of our savior and of course there was the end of classic doctor who at that time as well Mm. and that was bloody brilliant season 26 so Years later, suddenly the penny dropped. I know how I can have contact time with my sister. Why don't we podcast? And I still remember the text I sent. Why don't we do a podcast? (laughs) Because we would have so much fun. We'd wet ourselves laughing. And occasionally, because of the job I do, freelance work, um, I can probably get over to New Zealand and we can occasionally record some in your living room. And so it's proved. Or on the beach. On the beach, our Reign of Terror episode, which was one of the most fun things I've ever done on a beach. I have to say, lovely lovely audio quality of those waves coming in. No, but I was like, it's probably interfering. It's probably irritating everyone. No, it was nice. Was it? Okay, that's what Alex said. Alex said it would be fine. Don't worry. (laughs) But, um, yeah. So, uh, you've got plans for this for the future well i've just had a bit of a hiatus because i I yeah. took on too much work um i do consulting and I, I i just ended up doing too much work and it was like we've got to get back on the on the road with this because when we do it we love it mm. so um i think we're recording one on saturday oh, right. the next episode so which will be a colin baker because we haven't done uncle cole yet <laughs> <laughs> okay well thank you very much that's lovely thank so. you as well, say, welcome to the sofa. So good to be here. I hope to return. And to you, the you might sofa. end up in a cartoon at this rate. So scary, we shall see. scary stuff. Andy, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye. Thank you to Andy for yes, doing that. Thank you, Andy. It was lovely to meet him finally. It's weird because we never met. No. But I think we instantly got on. We did. Yeah. We did. Yes, we've all got the same kind of sense of humour, I think. Because I had to meet him in the dark with you my did. torch. <laughs> and he seemed amazed that I was I was tall. Yes. So I'm not as tall as he is. No. 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 Uh, <laughs> but yeah, lovely, lovely to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and now mm. for the final article. Finally, yes. we actually do something. Yes. Because people have said we haven't done much no, recently. No, we've been slacking. Yeah, I know. <laughs> But uh, mm. now we're going to take a trip to Amsterdam, yes. aren't we? Where we're going to meet Van der Volk.
Good evening, Lisa. Good evening, Andrew. Van der Volk, then. Yes, Van der Volk. We, we've done a fair old bit of Van der Volk. Yes, or how, how do you say it? Van der Volk. Yeah, because sometimes <laughs> it's really odd, this series, because obviously it's set in Holland, yeah. but it's all British actors, apart from the odd one or two act- one, odd, one or two Dutch actors. Um, so it's all done in British accents. Yeah. And they use words like geezer and mate and bird and, <laughs> and things. But then when he answers his name, yeah. he puts a bit of an accent in it. Yeah. When he says Prost, which is the, you know, cheers, he puts a bit of an accent in it. Yeah. But, but who's he? Who's he, this? Barry Foster. Sorry. As, as Who is Van der Volk? Pete Van der Volk. Apparently Pete's not his name. Okay. It's a nickname. But this is a, quite a weird series to watch in order. Yes. Because there are five series of it, mm-hmm. but they run from 1972 to 1992. Yes, which is like obviously not consecutively. So it goes 72, 73. Yeah. Then there's a big gap. Yeah. And it's sort of 77, 78. Yeah. Uh, then it's like 91, 92. And obviously the 91, 92 ones are feature length because that was the television was doing then but each season feels very different it does it? it's yeah. it's apart from series two and well i think lloyd shirley works on series one and series two and possibly a bit on series three but when you get to series three it's houston films that's yeah. doing it so it's the same people that are doing the sweeney and, and things like that so you get but you get different um people working on it and it's noticeable there's a lot more people credited on the used to, on series three than there is on series one or two yeah but robert Banks stewart is script editor on series two and he gives it a very different feel to series one because you you said series two it feels like van der volk is sort of butting heads with authority yes is that right? series one um i mean we're going to be talking about an episode that is from series one in later on in the article series one Obviously, he's interested in getting to the truth of things. Series two, you're still getting that, but it doesn't matter who is involved. He will try to get to the truth. doesn't matter who it is. And it does feel a bit like sort of Sergeant Cork. But <laughs> it, doesn't mat- it doesn't matter to him who the perpetrator of the crime is. He wants to bring them to justice. Yeah. But the episode we're sort of concentrating on is called Destroying Angel, which yes. is the second episode of series one of the first yeah. season. It's yes. got it's got uh, um, some interesting guest stars. It has. I think. Yeah. It has. We should talk also about the um, uh, the title sequence. Yeah. Because the title sequence changes for every series. Well, for um, this this one, he's up. They're on a sort of a top of a church. Yeah, on I, the roof. I just wrote in big letters, littering. Yes, he, he's really naughty because he he smokes cigars and he just pulls the plastic off and throws it. So. No concern for like. For, for like. Plastic. No, no. no. Yeah. But series two, he's driving over. He's driving through the centre of Amsterdam, and the idea of that was that, I think it was from Robert Bank Stewart that. We're not seeing enough of Amsterdam with it being on top of a church, so let's drive through Amsterdam. So, and in, in series three as well, you get people waving. You at get him. people waving at him, yeah, yeah. And then and there's a dog in one bit, isn't there? A dog <laughs> on a cart. But talking about dogs, you yes. better say about the the annual that you managed to oh, track right. down. Yes. What? You saying you managed to track down? I just looked on the internet. It's really you not hard. You just typed in Van der Waal. Did you know there was one? Or no, you, no, I just thought. Is there one? Is there one? Because I know at 
the point that Euston Films were doing the Sweeney, there's a couple of Sweeney annuals, mm. which is, still seems really odd because it's not the kind of series you'd really want children to watch. And I, thought, I just thought, I wonder, because it's around the same time time frame, whether there's a Vanderbilt annual. And I looked, and there was. Okay. And there's um, stories and strips and interviews with or focuses on some of the characters. And there's an interview with Barry Foster yeah. in here. They ask him about his interests and things. And there's a bit here that's interesting. And they've, what they've asked him is, um, has he got any pets? And he says he's got a Rottweiler. And they're like, oh, beg pardon, you know. What's so they, a, what's they, a Rottweiler? What's a Rottweiler? They don't know what it is. So he says, dogs. They're named after a small village near Stuttgart in West Germany and come from a stock of working dogs, originally bred by the Romans. Excellent guard dogs and they'll even pull a cart. Now, we, we'd, we'd, we'd just trying to imagine him arriving for work in a cart pulled by dogs. Yeah, going over the bridge. Going over the bridge, waving at people. Um, they're far more intelligent than hunting dogs and always dying to know what you want them to do next. Um, what we would consider as play, they think of as work. Now, apparently, Frank Windsor also had one. And it says, Frank Windsor, another TV cop, says Superintendent John Watt from Softly Softly. He had a female Rottweiler, and they were thinking of mating them and starting a kennel for them in the UK, where they were still pretty rare in 1977, 78. Okay. Um, we should also say about Robert Banks Stewart. Yes, Robert it, Banks Stewart. His claim. Yes. Now... Robert Banks Stewart wrote his memoirs for Milk Books. Yes. Um, and obviously, as, as we said, he was the script editor on series two. And now, some of the stories involve storylines, because obviously Amsterdam and Holland in general has a broader mind on um, sex workers and things like that. And they have live sex shows and apparently Robert Banks Stewart went to a live sex show and fell asleep twice twice <laughs> I'm just imagining because we, we've been to like pantomimes yeah. yes. with, with Paul yes and didn't we go to one that starred Bonnie Langford yes. and he fell asleep he fell in asleep there. now I should say we weren't in the middle of a row yeah. we were right at the back of the auditorium in in three individual seats yeah so, and I did look over, and he was snoring a little bit. Sorry, Paul. Um, and I did wonder how he managed to sleep through all the noise, really. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, um, also the Douglas Canfield book by Michael Seeley yes. does a little bit of stuff about it Van does. der Volk. Because mm -hmm. uh, Van der Volk sees Douglas Canfield notching up his 100th production yes. and his 100th thing shown on air. Yes. Because uh, the filming and transmission orders are the wrong yes. way round. It, so. it doesn't really matter. He does two for series two, and it doesn't matter which one he's shown first. One was his 100th that he filmed. One is his 100th to be shown on the television. Yeah. But one was pulled full, pulled, was filmed later, but pulled forward in the running order. But anyway, back back to the episode, yeah. uh, Destroying Angel. Mm -hmm. um, there's a dead... Well, there's not quite a dead body, he's is not a there? Dead body. He's not a dead body. No, <laughs> he's, there's a man in a room... And there's a doctor there, and he's played by James Carncross, who's in um, Crotons. All right. And um, another Doctor Who episode, I've forgotten which one it is. Isn't he in the Reign of Terror? He's in the Reign of Terror, yes. Yeah. I couldn't remember what it was called, sorry for a second. Um, yeah, he's La Marcha, isn't he? Yeah. It's, it's hard, because I don't know if his bits exist or not. So, And 
basically there's a policeman there. Yeah. Now, I don't know what the basic PCs are called in mm. Holland, but we were quite amused by the fact that the sergeants in Holland are called brigadiers. That's right. Because he, he calls he calls the brigadiers in, and we were just expecting Nicholas Courtney to appear. That would have been quite funny, actually, if you've got Nicholas Courtney in <laughs> to play one of the brigadiers. Um, one of us played by Dave Carter, who's in Hand of Fear, though. All right. Is it Hand? No, it's not Hand of Fear. It's um, Android Invasion. Sorry. Right. He's in a lot, actually, Dave yeah. Carter. But he's I think he's, he's a Silurian as well. Is he? Yeah, All right, okay. So. Yeah. But he's definitely very noticeable in, in one of them. And um, I've completely forgotten what we were, what we were talking about. The dead, oh, the dead de- body. The ne- nearly dead man, yes. Um, so he's been poisoned. So they take him to the hospital. Mm-hmm. And they're trying to work out why anybody would want to kill him and what the poison is. Now, as we've said, the, t- the, the name of this, the episode is called Destroying Angel. Which might give you a clue, yeah. If you because later on they things. find that there's corrosive been put on his fingertips yes, as well to, to get to get rid of his his, his um fingerprints. Fingerprints, yes. Yeah. But I did write down geezer because the phrase yeah. geezer is definitely used. It is definitely used, and it's very innocuous. Yeah, but um, the thing about Van der Volk is you shouldn't play a drinking game whilst no. watching. No. watching this series don't try and keep up with him drinking it usually only takes about five minutes into an episode before he's started drinking because there's a lot of drink drinking and driving well, he, he has wine and malt whiskey yeah but his his drink of choice is amstel beer it is. isn't it and and he has a little liqueur thing as well yeah but Am- amstel is i noticed there was a plane flying overhead towards the end yes. with a big advert for amstel it's almost mm-hmm. as though sponsored by amstel yes but yes. I got some for research purposes. I haven't tried it yet, though. Not yet. Yeah. And in the season eighteen writers uh, inter- interview, the writers' room, writers' room interview mm-hmm. on the new Doctor Who Blu-ray. Yeah. Uh, Steve Gallagher augurs. Yeah. Aug- aug- he orders <laughs> some Amstel. Amstel. Yeah. <laughs> and we did ask him about this, and he says normally he likes Malbec, yes. but uh, it was a hot day. It was a hot day, so he went for Amstel. So mm-hmm. any excuse, really. Um, at home with Van der Volk, yes. Um, his missus, you see yes, a lot. You do. She, she regenerates several times. Uh, mm. But he's got kids, but you never really see them. No, do you? you see him in one episode where they're very obviously played by local Dutch children because yeah. they've got Dutch accents and nobody else has. Well, we, we, we've got some info on yes. on on the yeah. Dutch filming later on. Um, and his his sort of assistant is Croon, isn't Kroon, it? Croon, yeah. yes. Played by Michael Latimer. Yeah. Um, and he he's in series one and two. Mm. He doesn't return for series three. I don't know if the actor was unavailable. And it's a little bit odd because obviously in series one and two, if he needs to talk to somebody, he talks to Johnny, calls him. Mm. He talks to him. In series three, because he's got no inspector in it, yeah. he ends up having to talk to his boss, played by Nigel Stock. Samson. Samson, yeah. In, in the annual, there's a nice pin-up of Nigel Stock. There is a nice picture of you, Nigel Stock. If yes. you want to put Nigel Stock up, Stock up on your bedroom wall. Yes. Um, but they discover a book of artwork of flowers. They do have flowers, yes. yes. And Patricia Quinn makes an appearance yes, as well, Patricia Quinn's um, your local prostitute, isn't yeah. she? Really, She's the one that's reported that there's a man who is sick to the patrolman, who's played by Trevor Martin. Mm-hmm. Well, what do you say when you have a drink? Frost. That's right. Yeah. Um, but he, he goes off to a local sort of book dealer's, isn't he it? Does. Sartorius. Sartorius. Now, yes. have you ever heard of Sartorius? You probably haven't. No. 
I've seen the name Sartorius an awful lot Have because okay. uh, they manufacture analytical balances. Oh, so okay. I, I, I've weighed a lot of things on Sartorius balances okay. over, over the time. So nice. it's just weird to see to that. To see it on there, yeah. But okay. yeah, he, he's, he's an art expert with yes. an accent. Only a little accent. And he's got loads of pussies, hasn't he? He's got lots he? of pussies in his shop. Yeah. And he keeps making, every time Vanderbilt goes in there, he makes him put some money in for the pussies. Yeah. Um, I always thought of him a bit like Mr. Sweet from Ace <laughs> yeah. of Wands. Yeah. I, and, and it's a shame he doesn't come back, come back in later mm. episodes. Cause I thought he was... If only to see the pussies. Nice. Mm. Um, but yeah, um, also Vanderbilt... Even his choice of sweets is alcoholic. Yeah, wine gums. Wine gums. And I do think of Tony Han- Hancock. He's walked mm. off with my wine gums. Mm. But this book apparently is very rare. Yes. And last one that was sold went for 700 quid. Mm-hmm. Um, then we get a little bit of chemistry going on mm-hmm. as, as, the, as the analyst yes. in a tiny little lab. Yes, that's really poorly lit. Yeah. He's got his Bunsen burner going in his pH paper. <laughs> And I wince because he's doing mouth pipetting. He's sucking stuff up in a glass pipette, but using his mouth. You're supposed to use a bulb or a pipette filler because if you get it in your mouth... And it's corrosive. And it's corrosive. It's going to sting. (laughs) To say the least. And then he starts tasting this powder as well. And I'm going, don't taste it. (laughs) So there's there's a lot of like health and safety. And I know in the the early 70s, this was standard stuff. So, Mm. you know... Using pipette fillers was like weedy, you know. Yeah. You, you sucked it up and suck it up, man. And then dealt, dealt, <laughs> dealt with it. But it turns out to be, um, well, there's some baking powder, baking powder, yeah, and some heroin, yes. isn't it, or horse, horse, as, yeah. they, as they call it. Um, mm. But um, they've they've got the fingerprints, mm-hmm. but they apparently um, belong to a bloke who was killed 20 years ago yes. in a car crash. Yes. So something weird is going on. Yes. Well, it's very There's always something weird going on. This is actually one of the less weird episodes. <laughs> this is one of the less, de- less weird ones, yes. yes. But he goes off to the hotel with his mm-hmm. with his missus, because yep. 15 years ago he proposed. Mm-hmm. He has a malt whiskey and she mm-hmm. has some horrible cocktail, doesn't yes. she? That she has to tell the bloke how to do. Yeah, that's like you at that hotel in, uh, was it Cambridge? <sighs> Well, you had to see him how to make a shandy. How to make a, yeah, make a shandy. The, how the, can you be a barman and no, not know how to make a shandy? Uh, I just think he was just busting that evening. Possibly. But um, eventually they they get a call from the bookshop yeah. that somebody's been in making inquiries. Mm-hmm. So they have to put more money in for the pussies. Yes. Um, uh, this turns out to be Richard Herndon. It does. Doesn't it? Being only what Richard Herndon can be. Yeah, because he, yeah. he's a sort of... What is he? A sort of servant? He's sort of a yeah, he's a butler or a valet or a all round sort of man servant. To an old bloke to a, um, who's who's the artist, yeah. the book uh, who who drew the yes. flowers. Monsieur Le Baron, as they call him. And it turns out that the uh body was his son. Was his son and that he faked his death. Yeah. And stole the book. And as far as we can tell, um Richard Herndall done in it done in him with mushrooms, yes. didn't didn't he? Yes. Uh, or at least, but the trouble is they can't prove any of it. No. And I like no. the line about scientists being gamblers. Yeah. They won't say yes and they won't say no, <laughs> but they'll say, well, maybe. Yeah, and they just, they'd put money on just every horse in the and, race. And to be, to be fair, if you're a scientist, you often have to say that. Yes. Because you can't categorically prove, prove anything. No. no. But you can say what probabilities are and mm-hmm. things like that. So I un- I understand his frustration, yeah. but if you want a true scientific answer, mm-hmm. often it's very it's very hard to yes. 
to pin things down yeah. like that. And there is a sort of occurring theme in this series that um, the episodes just often end without yeah. a resolution. Yeah. So nobody really gets arrested. It, they just end. Yeah. And this one, it just, you know, it just sort of stops in a way, doesn't it? Yeah. It's like it's filled its quota of 50 minutes. But but this is quite a hard series, I think, to, to research in any yes. great detail, isn't yes. it? Because we've got the Robert Banks Stewart and the Douglas Canfield books. Yeah. We've got the... We've got the annual, mm-hmm. and we've got uh, Made for Television, Euston Films Limited, mm-hmm. which talks about all the union troubles. Yes, in... they had for, before Series 3. Yeah. Mm. Um, but So we just sort of asked around and yeah. if anybody had any more info, mm-hmm. and we were, we were very pleased to get yes. this from uh, Martin Fenton, which I'll, yeah. I'll read out. Um, bit of trivia for you. When I worked in Amsterdam, I found out one of my colleagues, René, started his career coordinating the Dutch end of Van der Valk. Everything from booking technicians to sorting out accommodation for visiting actors and crew. He worked then for the media end of the VVV, the, Do- the Dutch Tourist and Publicity Office. I nearly said Dorset. <laughs> <laughs> Part of the original deal was to employ Dutch technicians and actors for the film items. You often find the native du- Dutch actors are children in the series. There was a quota. There's an episode or two with a conspicuously middle-aged, quote, teenager in the plot. That usually means the character is going to be involved in a fight scene. The series was well received in Holland, although the concept of a series about Dutch detectives performed entirely in English accents amuses my Dutch friend no end. And a second series was commissioned. All went well until they were doing the last of the film items when a technician from Thames touched something belonging to the Dutch Film Union. There was a strike and Thames's people returned home without a complete set of shots. It's the episode with Lala Ward in it. Two scenes are affected from memory and they ended up shooting a cafe scene on VT at Teddington Lock and there's some very dodgy studio chroma key work at the museum. The third series wasn't commissioned until after Euston films had been formed. After that they contracted local talent through freelance agencies rather than Dutch TV. René added that Barry Foster was one of the nicest men he has ever met. Which is nice. So uh, that was lo- lo- lovely. So thank yes. you for that, uh, yes. Martin. That was, that was yes. really nice to get a sort of personal yes. look at the series. Yeah. And, and of course, unfortunately, there aren't many people now no. sort of associated with the series on on, on a sort of long-term basis that, no. You, no. Know, that you can even talk to. Um, but yeah, it does very good for Doctor Who actors doesn't yes. it because as yes. we mentioned lala ward here but the one yes. we watched the other night yes, was from series night. three yeah which had patrick Troughton yep. playing a football loving vicar priest priest yeah and and william russell only in a very small bit at a the very end very small bit at the end but a quite a crucial part of it because he's the character he was playing had apparently gone missing and he was a prosecutor and he was due to do mm. a big trial oh, and hubert reese as well oh right yeah um and they were worried he'd been nobbled or kidnapped or something, and it just turns out that he'd got sick of his wife and gone off. And, his, and Freddie Jones. And Freddie as well. Jones, yeah. yeah, with his fancy woman. Yeah, well, playing a blind sort of. Well, yeah, he wasn't actually blind. No, he comes in the bank waving his, his stick about with his dark stick, glasses yeah. on. Um, but the third season does that first episode of the third yes. season does feel very different. It, it does because it starts yeah. with a car it chase, starts with a doesn't st- it? Car cards starts yes indeed with the car chase um and it does feel like it's the sweeney it, it doesn't does it? feel like it's sweeney it later goes on to feel like a bit like the professionals mm. 
because there's um, somebody stalking Van der Volk and his wife. Yeah. Who is now played by a different actress. And Donald G. And uh, Donald G gets gets exploded. Exploded. Um, <laughs> so that'll teach him to stay on the move. Yes. Um But And Michael Sheard was in an episode. Oh that's right, yes. yes. Um yes. But yeah, the second episode, the Trouton one, mm. um did strike me as being the comedy episode. Yeah, yeah, there's lots of little bits in it. Yeah. Yeah. And we should say about the theme tune as well. We should. Because, um, yeah, it's one of the most famous theme tunes, I think, um, in in sort of TV history. And one of the few that sort of gets on to Top of the Pops, doesn't it? As it it gets to to number one. It does. And released as a single, Mm -hmm. um, which did did very well. Mm. Um, But it's also amusing that there is the episode um, where they're going through the red light district. Yes. And suddenly somebody's thought to do a version of yep. the theme tune, which is, I've described it as the whacka whacka. The whacka whacka thing. Because mm-hmm. there, there's this whole wow, 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 wow. <laughs> it really is very, very funny yeah. to listen to. Yeah, we were just. Stunned the first time we heard it. Yeah, and I, I think I'll probably play it at this at this point anyway. Yes. Um, but yeah, I mean, we're I say we're, we're two series down yeah. and into the third series. Yes. We, I mean, enjoying the third series slightly less. Hmm. It, it, it so. is it is jarring after watching the first two series that suddenly mm-hmm. interiors are done on film. Yes, and it doesn't feel right. To it me. doesn't feel right. It's this. It's we we said this back last year in our piece about the um, 1998 Jack the Ripper series, that the difference, that they, it's, it's done on film and it looks beautiful, mm. but it distances you slightly from the action. Whereas if you're on videotape, it makes you feel like almost that you're in the room, yeah. that it's real. And that's what it does with Randall. Because when he and his newly regenerated wife yes. are in the house, mm-hmm. I was almost trying to vidfire it in my head. Mm. I was like... No, this is wrong. This should be on on video. On video, because it's, it is noticeable. There are scenes because there's a, there's an episode um, that's set in a, um, a a tractor firm. They sell tractors and oh, yeah. that's Christopher Benjamin. And it's Christopher Benjamin, and not playing a tractor. Not playing a tractor. He's on film outside. Yeah. The moment he comes in, it's studio and video. Yeah, and it's it's not as jarring as it can be sometimes. But it is going, oh, oh, we're in studio. Well, as I all say, real life looks like videotape to it me. Does. It does. It doesn't look like <laughs> Maybe it's something to do with how I was brought up on television. Maybe, that, yeah. You know, mm. outside looks like film, inside looks like videotape. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Must be sat weird about my eyes. Possibly, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so, yeah, Van der Volk is, is certainly well worth a look. Yes. And, of yes. course... It's a bit odd. Yeah. Y- y- you've got you've got the complete set we anyway. Have. Was yes. that fairly... Decent it value. It wasn't too bad. Yeah. yeah. And uh, how many? How many? Yeah, you get eleven discs worth of yes. stuff. So. Yeah. And as I say, the '90s stuff is done very much like Inspector Morse in a sort of two-hour film, mm. really. But worth a look. Um, got Ronald Hines in, <laughs> so he's always good value. But, uh, but there you are, yeah. Van der Volk then. Mm-hmm. Definitely worth a look. Yes. Okay. Proust. Proust.
Thank you to us for doing Vandervolk. Yeah, I'm really not sure we can do that, but still. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, an yeah. extra piece that we yes. haven't really planned on no. doing, but we should definitely mm-hmm. include it. Yes, this time. Because yes. um, Nick, Paul and um, Andy Ching, Andy who is Ching. a new voice. I was going to say, Andy Ching has not been on. He's not been on yet, on here, but hopefully he'll be on again. He is. Um, they've done a short piece on uh, the Tales of the Unexpected episode, My Lady Love, My Dove, starring... Shane Mimmer, who yeah. sadly passed away um, a few days ago. So they're looking at the episode and his legacy. And uh, we had the pleasure of meeting Shane Mimmer once, um, no, many remember, years yeah. ago, a gunfighter's uh, signing for the um, the VHS. Yeah, because we've got the cover yes. signed, haven't we? Yeah. yeah. And uh, it was him and David Graham was there. And David Graham accused him of shooting him, when, which is, in fact, in fact... And true, because it was Lawrence Payne. Yeah. So, yeah. So, this will mm. be the final piece. And then yes. we'll go into the end credits and yes. everything. So but do stay on after the end credits, because oh, there, there might be a surprise. Okay. Um, I'm sorry. <laughs> but, so, thank you again for listening. Yes. And hope to see you all again in episode 35. Yes. Blimey. Lisa, it's me, Paul the Shy Yeti again. Um, I'm here with Nick Goodman and Andy Ching again, and we've just watched an episode of Tales of the Unexpected. Nick will give you the information, the reason why we chose the particular episode we did. This is an episode called My Lady Love My Dove, written by the great Roald Dahl, and uh, the reason why I've chosen it and we're watching it is uh, Shane Rimmer. The actor uh, who'd been in is in this episode. Sadly, died yesterday uh, at the age of eighty-nine. And um, he's and he's. I've always liked this episode. I've always been quite funny and well acted and and quite fun. And it, you know, no one gets murdered or mangled or anything like that as they usually do in tales than expected. But uh, it's actually a lot, a lot of good, clean fun, lots of fun banter. And um, it's a good role for Shane Rimmer. Um, who's uh, partnered with Elaine Stritch. Elaine, the wonderful Elaine Stritch. His comic timing and everything is just immaculate. Um, but, um, yeah, it's uh, so I thought, oh, yeah, let's... I, uh, my first instinct was to stick on the gunfighters. Um, but four, four episodes... I will do it at some point, but uh, <laughs> four episodes, quite a long time. But, of course, hugely prolific career... Um, for obviously the four episodes of Doctor Who best known for Thunderbirds as Scott Tracy um, he's been in everything Space 1999 Bond f- three times I think and uh, I met him in 2001 I think was it one and two and a uh, lovely guy and we talked about Roger Moore uh, and who we worked with on uh, Spy Who Loved Me um, yeah so great chat and um very sad to hear he's gone but uh, yeah from a plot point of view the episode's about a couple who um, are having a party but they come up with the idea of of putting sort of um, listening devices into 
the bedroom of the uh, of their guests so they can hear what they're gossiping about. And when they do, they find out that they've come to kind of rip them off and then it becomes a bit of a sort of, I wonder if we can use what they're... Uh, well, how they were going to be passed off to rip them back off you, know, you never actually find out whether they're successful I, one of the things that's oh, I always find interesting about Raoul Dahl's tale of the unexpected is there's nearly always an American character in there and I don't know if that's deliberate or whether it was a, a chance <coughs> by Anglia to kind of sell it to the America but um, this is the sec- second of two um, Lane Stritch episodes uh, she did an episode in series one as well, um, which, which is also written by Raoul Dahl. But uh, great actress, and I actually based the character on in the Magnus editor on uh, Lane Stritch. <laughs> it's a very, very funny act. Andy, any thoughts um, on on I'm, Shane Rimmer or the episode? I love Shane Rimmer. Yeah. He's to me, he's like the US version of Mark Ripper, <laughs> who you see, you know, almost everything you've ever seen ever. Um, yeah, he would. Scott Tracer is my favourite in front of birds. He's one of the faces that I've seen throughout my life. And I'm pretty sure I saw this one way back in the day. Because it's the whole counting off of the cards. It still makes no sense to me. No, no, doing me it. <laughs> like, that just seems really familiar. But um, a great character piece. Yeah. I'm say quite light on um, the murder and, and the gruesomeness for a change. <laughs> That could well come later in the episode. <laughs> in, the, uh, in, in the episode, we don't the bit, the bit you don't see filmed. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, oh. Shane Rimmer's com- uh, wonderfully cast against Elaine Stritch uh, because he's kind of low key, a normal, regular guy, and 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 she's kind of the big in your face, <laughs> in your face, amusingly, com- totally selfish kind of a rich bitch, and uh, it's, just, it's just a wonderful character. Me, so I've always liked it. And it's it's nice to have a whimsical one for a change. It's uh, yeah, I, I, you know, it's um, they can't all be about murder and trying to do away with the husband or whatever. But, uh, <laughs> well, you started off with that instead, didn't you? Yes, <laughs> get the murders out. Yes, yeah, so, uh, it's a story. I also I like I used to love it when Raoul Dahl, um introduced the episode as he does in this one. For the first two series, I think he does it in every single episode. Um, Mainly because he's just so creepy. He's, he's creepier than the episode <laughs> itself. You know, it's uh, you know, he, he make, makes everything seem really sinister, which is, is great. Um, and I, I think it lost something when uh, he stopped introducing it. He was introduced stories that he didn't, he hadn't written, but it, it just added something to it. I just, I was a. By the time this went out in 1980, I was a, I was a massive fan of the series, and I was, I'd never missed an episode, and. And um, I was I was hooked on it really, and the title sequence absolutely hypnotic, and and uh, Ron Grainer's theme music is one of the great, the last great iconic ones he wrote because of course he died in '81. So, um, and uh, yeah, everybody still talks about it. So um, good stuff. Yes. Yeah. Um, well, um, thank you very much for for suggesting this one. was episode 34 of Round the Archives. Starring Lisa Parker, Andrew Trowbridge, Martin Holmes, Andy Priestner, 
Paul Chandler, Nick Goodman and Andy Ching. Thanks also to Martin Fenton, Michael Seeley and Matt West. On the musical side, you heard Dan Tate and Paul Chandler. The script for Van der Volk, Destroying Angel, was by Michael Chapman. And the producer was... Michael Chapman!